If this podcast ever becomes a book, the contents of today's episode would probably appear in a later chapter, a chapter rife with speculation and possibility. The book will not be called The Hard Problem, out of respect for David Chalmers, who coined the term. Maybe I'll call it The Landscape of Consciousness. Let's be honest, at this point in my career, nobody is looking for a book on consciousness from me. But if I can get a large enough audience for my ideas, then maybe I'll write it in the future. I hope so. I'll let you know when the publishers come knocking down the door. The topic of today concerns two interrelated ideas. First, the will. The sense of conscious control and authorship that we have for our physical and mental actions. Second, free will. The hypothetical capacity for conscious will to act with a degree of independence from prior causes. In episode 3, I laid out my argument against the epiphenomenality of consciousness. I observed that my experiences are positive when this animal behaves in ways that serves its evolved objectives, and that my experiences are unpleasant when the animal becomes injured or socially rejected. I concluded that since my conscious experiences are not composed of arbitrary contents, but appropriate ones, it is reasonable to assume that consciousness serves an adaptive function. If qualia are produced as an arbitrary side effect of neuronal network activities, why aren't the qualia arbitrary? But even if consciousness serves a function, as I claim, that does not imply freedom of the will. The moon serves many functions, which is to say that it exhibits causality, but it doesn't have a will. And if the moon did have a will, it wouldn't be free to change its own course. In episode 6, I described my theoretical framework for consciousness, the temporally integrated causality landscape. I, ex I explained my proposal that consciousness is composed of meaningful contents, established in the relationship between a large, integrated system and some number of integrated and differentiated subsystems existing within that larger system. It is integrated such that it composes a single, massive entity with some non-zero degree of temporally integrated causality across all of its neuronal elements. According to this theory, the level of temporally integrated causality for the whole system from which consciousness arises sets a threshold for meaning. Any subsystem will produce meaningful content because it will have a higher and therefore distinguishable level of temporally integrated causality than the system as a whole. This framework for consciousness depends on the idea of causality, which begs the question, does the mind exhibit causality on the material world? If not, then consciousness could not serve a function. But my analysis of the qualia of which conscious experiences are composed has forced me to conclude that it does serve a function. This means that, directly or indirectly, consciousness has causality in the material world. We tend to assume that this is so through the direct and willful control of voluntary action and decision-making. John Searle, in Minds, Brains, and Science, says, quote, the kind of causation which is essential to both the structure of action and the explanation of action is intentional causation. The bodily movements and our actions are caused by our intentions. Intentions are causal because they make things happen, but they also have contents and so configure in the process of logical reasoning. They can be both causal and have logical features because the kind of causation we are talking about is mental causation or intentional causation. And in intentional causation, mental contents affect the world. The whole apparatus works because it is realized in the brain." Unquote. 
I interpret Searle's description of intentional causation as requiring the capacity for direct control of action by the will. But some interesting experimentation suggests that the conscious will cannot be achieving the task. Benjamin LeBay carried out a series of experiments designed to determine which comes first, the activity in the motor cortex that initiates a voluntary movement or the sense of will to make that movement. Each subject was seated in front of a clock face with a dot that moved around its circle about three times faster than a normal second hand on a clock. The subject was fitted with a recording electrode over the motor and premotor area corresponding to the hand. He or she was instructed to perform a flexion of the wrist at any time they felt like doing so. They were told not to pre-plan when to act, but just to let the will to act appear on its own. They were told to associate their first awareness of the intention to move the wrist with the position of the moving dot on the clock. Over many trials, LeBay found that the will to act occurred about 200 milliseconds before the muscle moved. But, most importantly, a signal called the readiness potential was recorded by the electrode to occur 550 milliseconds before the muscle moved. In his book, Mind Time, LeBay writes, is it possible that the specific brain activities leading to a voluntary act begin before the conscious will to act? In other words, before the person is aware that he intends to act? This possibility has arisen partly from our evidence that sensory awareness is delayed by a substantial time period of brain activities. If the internally generated awareness of the will or intention to act is delayed by a required period of activities lasting up to 500 milliseconds, it seems possible that the brain's activities that initiate a will to act begin well before the conscious will to act has been adequately developed. We were able to examine this issue experimentally. What we found, in short, was that the brain exhibited an initiating process beginning 550 milliseconds before the freely voluntary act, but awareness of the conscious will to perform the act appeared only 150 to 200 milliseconds before the act. The voluntary process is therefore initiated unconsciously, some 400 milliseconds before the subject becomes aware of her will or intention to perform the act." Unquote. Subsequent experiments led LeBay to suggest that conscious will does have veto power that can arrest a previously initiated act within the final 100 to 200 milliseconds of the process. In his book, The Illusion of Conscious Will, Daniel Wegner cites work by himself and many others, including Benjamin LeBay, to make the case that the sense we have of controlling our actions is separable from their actual control. In contrast to LeBay's proposed veto function for conscious will, Wegner argues that mental explanations for behavior causation are an illusory impression. He writes, quote, Does the compass steer the ship? In some sense, you could say that it does because the pilot makes reference to the compass in determining whether adjustments should be made to the ship's course. If it looks as though the ship is headed west into the rocky shore, a calamity can be avoided with a turn north into the harbor. But of course the, hump, the compass does not steer the ship in any physical sense. The needle is just gliding around in the compass housing, doing no actual steering at all. It is thus tempting to relegate the little magnetic pointer to the class of epiphenomena, things that don't really matter in determining where the ship will go. Conscious will is the mind's compass. As we have seen, the experience of consciously willing action occurs as the result of an interpretive system 
a coarse sensing mechanism that examines the relations between our thoughts and actions and responds with, I willed this, when the two correspond appropriately. Unquote. This analogy to a mindless and causally determined compass is pretty dismal. It implies both that the will is not controlling the ship, and that even if it were, it would not be free while it was doing so. On his theory of apparent mental causation, Wegner writes, quote, The experience of will could be the result of the same mental processes that people use in the perception of causality more generally. The theory of apparent mental causation, then, is people experience conscious will when they interpret their own thought as the cause of their action. This means that people experience conscious will quite independently of any actual causal connection between their thoughts and their actions. Reduction in the impression that there is a link between thought and action may explain why people get a sense of involuntariness even for actions that are voluntary, for example, during motor automatisms, such as table turning, or in hypnosis, or in psychologically disordered states such as dissociation. And inflated perceptions of the link between thought and action may in turn explain why people experience an illusion of conscious will at all." Unquote. I think we should take seriously the experimental evidence, but I am, at least for now, committed to the claim that consciousness serves a function. What if consciousness does not serve the function of allowing us willful control over voluntary action? Let me suggest a thought experiment. Suppose two people are sitting across from one another face to face. The first person, let's call him the player, is holding a Nintendo controller in his hands and looking attentively at the face of the second person. The player has the capacity to press buttons on the controller, but only has access to the reactions he perceives in the other person. This second person, let's call him the observer. He's watching a television screen over the shoulder of the player across from him. The observer is not allowed to speak or to signal or communicate to the player. The first level of contra appears in the screen, and the muscled hero begins moving across the platform, jumps sporadically, and fires his weapon wildly. The player may only judge the quality of his button mashing by noting the expressions on his counterpart's face. The observer is aware of the game and therefore aware of its goal. I submit that, just as an infant is woefully incompetent at birth in achieving coordinated and effective behaviors, but gradually masters them, the player will gradually master the game, though he doesn't even see it or know what the game is, by practiced reading of the observer's reactions. When that occurs, two things will be happening. First, the muscle hero will blaze through the game exactly according to the observer's preferences. And second, the observer will have the distinct sense of willfully controlling the character in the game. He won't know how he is doing it, just as you and I don't know how we do it but we infer from our own experience that we are in direct control. The unified conscious experience allows us to see and hear and feel the relevant features of our environment, relevant in terms of our own implicit and explicit goals. The somatosensory network corresponding to the palm of the right hand has no access to the visual network for detecting motion in, say, the left visual field. As I have discussed in previous ep episodes of this podcast, there are discrete specialized networks localized at different places in the cortex. They don't know about each other. They don't know the behaviors they are engaged in or the scene they are helping create. They don't know anything with regard to goals. I do because they exist from my point of view. If the motor and cognitive neur neuronal elements can use that information, 
what I am seeing, what I am feeling, and what I want to have them do, perhaps I don't need to be in the driver's seat. But from my perspective, it nonetheless feels as though I am. If that is so, then I am analogous to the observer, but not to the player. Maybe the sense of conscious will, though illusory, is adaptive because it allows us to distinguish what we are doing and what we have done from what something or someone else is doing. If consciousness guides behavior by indirect means to act in service of its goals, then this subjective viewpoint might be useful. Like the self-construct with which we mistakenly identify, this impression of who we are and what we are up to might be the best one natural selection could find. The illusion might be more adaptive than the truth. The model of the function of consciousness described here is that of a planner and evaluator. Christoph Koch and Francis Crick propose the executive summary that enables the conscious mind to act in the formation of policy recommendations. Perhaps while critical to our behavior, we conscious minds aren't really what we seem. If the will is not in direct control, but nevertheless has an important guiding function, does that imply that it is free? In an inquiry concerning human understanding, the essay on liberty and necessity, David Hume wrote, quote, It is universally allowed that matter, in all its operations, is actuated by a necessary force, and that every natural effect is so precisely determined by the energy of its cause that no other effect in such particular circumstances could possibly have resulted from it. The degree and direction of every motion is, by the laws of nature, prescribed with such exactness that a living creature may as soon arise from the shock of two bodies as motion in any other degree or direction than what is actually produced by it. Our idea, therefore, of necessity and causation arises entirely from the uniformity observable in the operations of nature, where similar objects are constantly conjoined together, and the mind is determined by custom to infer the one from the appearance of the other. These two circumstances form the whole of that necessity which we ascribe to matter." Unquote. With specific regard to the will, Hume wrote, quote, We feel that our actions are subject to our will, on most occasions, and imagine we feel that the will itself is subject to nothing, because when by a denial of it we are provoked to try, we feel that it moves easily every way and produces an image of itself, even on that side on which it did not settle. This image, or faint motion, we persuade ourselves could, at that time, have been completed into the thing itself, because, should that be denied, we find upon a second trial that at present it can. We consider not that upon the fantastical desire of shewing liberty is here the motive of our actions, and it seems certain that, however we may imagine we feel a liberty within ourselves, a spectator can commonly infer our actions from our motives and character, and ever where he cannot he concludes in general that he might, where he perfectly acquainted with every circumstance of our situation and temper, and the most secret springs of our complexion and disposition, now this is the very essence of necessity. Unquote. This argument is reminiscent of Sam Harris's observation that our thoughts simply appear in consciousness. If, at bottom, we are not responsible for authoring our thoughts or desires, then even if the will is in direct control of action, even if the will has causal power over voluntary movements and cognitive processes, or causal power to veto them, they are nevertheless not free in any sense. If we could rewind the clock, if we could go back in time to a precise moment, is there any possibility of our acting differently in that moment than we did the first time? By what means? 
All of the matter and energy are positioned and in motion exactly as they have been. All of the neurons are firing with exactly the frequency and amplitude that they have been. Nothing can go other than it does. Each subsequent moment is constructed of the causalities which it inherits. Even quantum uncertainty only introduces a degree of chance, not an opportunity for free will. At least we do not yet know of anything in quantum physics that promises to pry open a gap for the freedom of will. Maybe it is yet to be discovered. There's a chance, right? Free will is a weird problem. I act according to my plans and preferences. I am under the power of motivating factors. Thoughts come up and I entertain them or struggle with them or simply forget what they were and move on. Hume says, a spectator can commonly infer our actions from our motives and character. And even where he cannot, he concludes in general that he might, were he perfectly acquainted with every circumstance of our situation and temper, and the most secret springs of our complexion and disposition. By that reasoning, my behavior is perfectly predictable, given all of the factors in my mind and brain. So if I would willfully carry out the exact same behaviors, whether my will were free or not, why do I give a goddamn whether I have free will? Free to do what? To act against my own motivations and desires? Mm -hmm.